Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, <clears throat> the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. They looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, several days ago, I went out to lunch with a friend and my friend suggested that we go to a place that was a little bit nicer than the places I usually go for lunch. <laughs> Very frequently I go to my desk for lunch <laughs> where there might be a peanut butter sandwich waiting for me or something in a Tupperware container that's left over from whatever I cooked in the crock pot on Saturday. But today was a day, this day was a day to go out to lunch and so we were seated in a booth. We were given napkins, mm. not paper napkins. And we were visited by a server and a server in training. So we were asked for our drink order, two iced teas with lemon, please. And these two went away. And then after a moment, they came back. Each of us was served an iced tea with lemon. And the server in training looked at me and said, I just have to say this. Do you know Valerie Stevenson? And I said, no, I'm afraid I don't. And she said, oh my gosh, she is beautiful and you look just like her. <laughs> Which would have been great if she had stopped there. <laughs> I said, well, what a nice thing to hear. Thank you so much. I mean, She's my age, so, and I can tell you're not my age, but you could, like, totally be, like, her mother. <laughs> and you could, like, totally be, like, a server who's not going to get that good of a tip. <laughs> I didn't say that, although every fiber of my being wanted to. But apparently, I have been transfigured. <laughs> apparently, I've been alive for a little while. And I have been transfigured by the experience. I know that my 30th high school reunion will be next year somewhere. And I know that I was moved by the music that the instrumentalists were playing today this Cheshnikov piece 
We sang that in college in the chamber choir, Salvation is Created, we sang it in English. And I just immediately went back to Tejan's Hall with John Stewart conducting us and John Wingert singing the solo tenor. That was 25 years ago. So I have been transfigured. If I am the fake mother of beautiful women, I guess time is starting to show. But these three people on the mountaintop were also transfigured. And before Lent is over, we hope that we too will be transfigured. This transfiguration story tells us how Jesus is confirmed by the heavenly voice who says, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased, as the victorious son of God, but at the same time, the suffering servant who will go to the cross and who will die. This word transfigured is literally in Greek, having undergone a metamorphosis. And if you want the actual Greek word, it's metamorpho, oh my. And that's the way I felt at that restaurant, metamorpho, oh my. <laughs> Give me a break. Oh my being a past tense ending of Greek words. Metamorpho, oh my, they were transfigured. Fred Craddock tells us that Peter is the one who's celebratory up there on the mountaintop. Lord, it is good for us to be here. Let me build three dwellings for you and Moses and Elijah. Let us stay here on the mountaintop. He doesn't completely understand that Jesus will soon start the path toward the end of his life. He doesn't understand what it means to take up the cross. Ash Wednesday is the beginning of Lent officially when we symbolically wander in the wilderness for 40 days as Jesus wandered in the wilderness being tempted by the devil before he started working towards Jerusalem. Lent is a time when we are supposed to be self-reflective, perhaps engaging in self-denial or taking on an additional spiritual practice. It is not a time of celebration and for centuries the church has avoided saying the word Alleluia. So we won't be having any more Alleluia, Amen, Amen for 40 days. This is not a time of celebration. And it's the day for me to say, you don't get to put out your inflatable white rabbit on your lawn until Easter. Now, if you are a Wiccan or pagan and you're celebrating nature, then I guess you can do that. But if you're a Christian person, we don't bring out our rabbits until Easter Sunday morning because we're still in Lent until sunrise that day. Roberta Bondi was your Barton Clinton Gordy lecturer about seven years ago, and I wasn't here at that time, but I did watch her lectures later. She was one of the two speakers at the five-day academy for spiritual formation that I got to attend about 10 years ago. I loved everything she had to say. Her specialty has been the fourth century mystics. These people, the Abbas and the Amas that she spoke about, who went to live in the desert away from people in solitude. They went there to be converted. They went there to see the old self die and the new self be born. They wanted to see the emergence of the new person. Henry Nouwen would write, solitude is a courageous encounter with our naked, most raw and real self in the presence of pure love. 
This level of contemplation cannot help but bring about action. Contemplation is defined by Richard Rohr as the deliberate seeking of God through a willingness to detach from the passing self, the self that we know, this body we live in while we're alive, detaching from the tyranny of emotions, our addiction to self-image, and the false promises of the world. Diana Butler Bass is another wonderful female theologian who's writing book after book right now, and she reminds us that going to the desert to find God was not an escape. It was not these people trying to get away from sins or people or situations, but rather the first step on the way toward becoming a new person, a universal community of God's love. She says their response to Jesus, come follow me, was intimately bound up with the practice of prayer, for prayer connects us to God and others, part of this enterprise of learning to love. Prayer is much more than a technique, and early Christians left us no definitive how-to manual on prayer, except for the Lord's Prayer. The desert fathers and mothers believed that prayer was a disposition of wholeness, so that our prayer and our life must be all of a piece. They wanted to get away from the familiar and conform to the way of Christ. I thought about wandering in the wilderness and I thought about a phrase that my very favorite elementary school teacher used to use with us at a specific time in our behavioral cycle in second, third, and fourth, and fifth grade. I think I've mentioned before that every place I went to school in this town has either exploded or burned down or been knocked down. So I I think I went to these places, but there's no evidence of my fingerprints on any of it because my elementary school is now a very lovely housing development. I went to Barnard Elementary and my favorite teacher was John Townsend. He was our music teacher. And we called him Mr. T, and we started doing that before there was a man on TV on the A-team who called himself Mr. T. So the real Mr. T was John Townsend. And my sister, if you don't know, I'll tell you, she is a professional musician who went to Northwestern University and majored in music, and then she went on to the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music and got a master's degree in accompanying, which has served her well as she now is on the national tour of the Broadway musical Frozen with Olaf. (laughs) And yes, she will be here in June. Get your tickets now. (laughs) Anyway, she has said of Mr. Townsend, I learned more about music theory from Mr. T in elementary school than I did in college or in grad school. And she was that much farther ahead of her classmates who didn't know what the circle of fourths or the circle of fifths was. You musicians know what those are. Those are the chromatic relationships between notes that are either four spaces apart on the chromatic scale or the five spaces apart. There's a way to remember them, and if you write out your circle of fourths or fifths, then you can write out the corresponding major keys and minor keys that go with them. Okay, we learned this in second grade. He also taught us about intervals. And if you know your intervals, you can play in one of these ensembles or you can sing in an ensemble like I always did. 
you can relate, if you're an alto, you can make a relationship between yourself and the sopranos because you know that Mm-hmm, is a major third, and that's, oh, when the saints go marching in, and dum-dum-dum-dum is, here comes the bride, which is a perfect fourth, and then perfect fifth, that is Star Wars, da 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 or perfect, oh, not perfect, but major six lies over the ocean, my body lies over the sea, and on and on. I didn't know my body lies over the ocean until I was in Mr. T's class. I didn't know about Star Wars. These things you might look at today and say, well, those kids are too young to remember any of that. Well, after all these years of having pretend children, I still remember my intervals. So not only did he teach us those relationships, but then we learned a whole bunch of songs. He took us to a dress rehearsal of the Tulsa Opera production of Attila, the story of Attila the Hun, which is a great thing for third graders to go and see these warriors crowding the stage of the Tulsa PAC. And there we were, two rows of us in the balcony with rapt attention. They came on stage with their spears and their shields and their giant headdresses crowding around Simon Estes here from out of town in his prime to be Attila, the lead role in his fabulous bass baritone. And the best part of it for me was they kept messing it up and they had to do it over and over and over again. And that felt really behind the scenes to hear a director tell all of these adults, no, 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 you did it wrong. You stood in the wrong place. You came in at the wrong place. It taught us that, oh, even adults need discipline. And even adults need to learn their lines and know their blocking and do their homework. Hmm, even adults need to behave. Mr. T lined us all up to do a talent show at the end of the school year and he had most of us sing solos, either from Broadway shows or from the top 40 hits of the day. Lionel Richie stuff. I won't name all of the people I sang. Papa, can you hear me? From Yintel. And he was there, and he said he could, so that was good. <laughs> but that movie had come out about the time I finished elementary school. He taught us in that gym slash auditorium that you don't really need a microphone. And don't be like these people on television who eat the microphone. They are not working. They are not singing. You don't need that. Leontine Price doesn't use a microphone. And then we all knew who Leontine Price was. I remember him once telling us that the smart kids don't watch TV, they read books. Because TV, just no offense to Channel 8 television, but TV <laughs> just gives you all the images and your brain doesn't have to work and imagine them on your own. He taught us how to waltz. He taught us how to sit still and listen to music. And when we started misbehaving, he knew how to round us up. Mr. T reminded me of my own dad, and I think Kathy would agree, in so many ways. There was one notable difference between them. My dad was Anglo-white. Mr. T is African-American. But in my mind, they looked alike. They wore the same kind of aviator frames. They dressed alike, they stood alike, they had good posture. 
and they expected the best of us. They expected us to learn, they expected discipline, they expected to be able to teach us things. Those two men also grew up in similar circumstances, out in the country, different places in the country, in the nation, different times. But some of the phrases he used could have come out of my father's mouth. When we started misbehaving, I mean, the people around me started misbehaving, <laughs> he would say, you kids are carrying on like a bunch of lost goslins in the high weeds. That's when I learned what a baby goose was. And if you're a baby goose and you get off into the high weeds, you can't see your mommy anymore. So we knew when we started hearing about how we're lost goslins in the high weeds and we needed to cut the clowning, which was another really good one that he said, cut the clowning. It was time for us to focus. In Lent, we admit to ourselves and to God and to anybody listening that we are lost goslins in the high weeds. As much as we try to convince ourselves otherwise and reassures our, assure ourselves that we're in control, we're on top of everything, we can do it. We can do a lot, but we need God's help every step of the way. In Lent, we humble ourselves in the presence of God in order to let God reorient us on the path and get us out of those high weeds. We admit we're lost and that we're so utterly dependent on God's love, God's mercy, God's guidance, and God's direction. In the season of Lent, we are supposed to be transfigured. We are supposed to find ourselves evolving, even the tiniest little bit. Even Marie Callender has come up with all of these great things for you to do. And the rest of us are, of course, supporting all of you and reminding you that it's Lent. You can do the thing that is probably the most co uh, popular in this country. You can give up chocolate for Lent. Well, big deal. I'm not impressed. Okay. You could abstain from chocolate, which for some of us is harder than others, or you could abstain from other foods, or you could take something on. This is the side of Lent I find somewhat more interesting. You could read scripture. You could do walking prayer every day. You could write a note of encouragement to someone every day. You could journal, or you could pledge to support this church or the cause you feel most passionate about by setting aside a monetary amount every day of Lent. When I was a senior pastor in Norman, we decided for a couple of years to do 40 bags in 40 days. So the people that had really cluttered attics were able to get 40 bags of stuff that they could donate to places, clothing and shoes and toys and the like. Maybe you would have 40 bags of bottled water, a bag of, well, that's a lot, a bag of bottled water or a bag of snacks you could take, or a bag of new socks you could take to the day center for the homeless. There's some ideas like that on your calendar. I know we're entering into Lent, and it's, it, Lent is kind of a hard sell. We've got a lot of retired ministers in the congregation, and it is hard to really sell Lent and get people excited about Lent. 
when people really aren't supposed to be excited about it. It's a, it's a dark time. It's an introspective time. We can't even say alleluia. That one lady said we can't put out our inflatable rabbits even during Lent. So we're not supposed to have a ton of fun. I found out something about myself that corresponds to why I actually like Lent so much. There's a spiritual tool called the Enneagram, E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. I also want a spelling bee at Barnard. Um, But the Enneagram, it's a new word for me. It's a spiritual tool. There are nine different personalities, spiritual personalities. You can Google this. I'm a number four. Number fours are the real downers of the group. (laughs) Number fours love Lent. Number, Number fours are filled with angst. Number fours wear dark clothing. Anyway, I guess now I'm trying not to be such a four, but I do get so much out of Lent, and I feel like it's a rich, rich time. But I also feel like we're living through a time in our world and in our nation when it's hard to find things to say hallelujah about, even if we could say hallelujah. We're watching Democratic candidates line up and some of them fall away, some of them duke it out, almost punching each other in the face over things they disagree on. We've watched an impeachment trial Everybody here, whichever side your bread is buttered on, has had something to be upset about as far as politics go. We look around and we think about how things haven't changed, how we've wished for the world to be a better place, and it's still a violent place, a place filled with children who are poor, people who don't have opportunities. And I don't know about you, but I've been craving a really inspiring speech. Some of you know that in some of the stuff I've inherited, including Barton Clinton lecture brochures, I have inherited quite a few vinyl records. And one of the records I have is from my grandfather, the one who really liked Kennedy and Lincoln. Fun fact about my family, I had four grandparents that were born, three of them in the same year. Very different attitudes, very different leanings. One side was really excited about everything Lincoln ever said or wrote. One side was not that excited about Lincoln or Kennedy. But one of my grandfathers saved a record that he must have purchased right after Kennedy was assassinated. It's, a, it's an album, which means there are two records in it. John F. Kennedy, a self-portrait, all recorded by NBC and provided for us on vinyl, probably you could download it now. So I had this on yesterday when I was cleaning up the kitchen and making chili in the crock pot. And I found myself sitting in front of the record player weeping. This was Kennedy at his acceptance speech when he was nominated as a Democratic candidate for presidency in Los Angeles, July 15, 1960. He says, the problems are not all solved, and the battles are not all won, and we stand today on the edge of a new frontier, the frontier of unknown opportunities and perils, the frontier of unfilled hopes and unfilled threats. Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal promised security and succor to those in need. 
The new frontier of which I speak is not a set of promises, it is a set of challenges. It sums up not what I intend to offer the American people, but what I intend to ask of them. It appeals to your pride, not your security. It holds out the promise of more sacrifice instead of more security. The new frontier is here whether we seek it or not, and beyond that frontier are uncharted areas. Unsolved problems of peace and war, unconquered provinces of ignorance and prejudice, unanswered questions of poverty and surplus, unanswered questions about how our denomination will look in a year. My edit. I believe the times require imagination and courage and perseverance. I'm asking each of you to be pioneers toward that new frontier. My call is to the young at heart, regardless of age, stout in spirit, regardless of party, to all who respond to the call of one's nation, or I would say, of one's God, to respond to the scriptural call. Be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be dismayed. For courage, not complacency, is our need today. Leadership, not salesmanship. Have we the nerve or the will? Yes, we do. Like Peter as he descended from the mountaintop. By God, with God's ever-present urging and the ever-present Holy Spirit, guiding us through our wilderness times. We will make it past the frontier, through the wilderness, and to that great resurrection morning. Amen.